1908, poet William Blake scribbled down a few stanzas that would eventually go on to become one of England's most famous hymns, sung in private schools across the land and regarded as an alternative national anthem. Jerusalem, as Blake titled his poem, imagines Jesus Christ visiting England and briefly making it a little slice of heaven. But one of the most enduring images from the poem was its focus on the English countryside. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. The image of England's green and pleasant land is one that has endured for centuries. From the romantics of the 18th century to campaigns to dig for victory in World War II, the English countryside has been invoked by everyone from politicians to poets to drum up deep feeling. A quiet pastoral life where people live off the land has always been positioned as a perfect ideal in opposition to noisy, dirty cities which represent modernity and change. But the truth, as it always is, is quite different. While we're encouraged to imagine the English countryside as a perfect haven of respite, safe from the troubles of the world, in reality, the space is deeply political. Public land is often not that at all. A 2019 study by Guy Shrubsole found that over half of English land was owned by just 25,000 people. Typically, corporations or members of the aristocracy and the rich, like vacuum tycoon James Dyson. And in 2020, suddenly, people became sharply aware of land access once more, as the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted just who had the space to go for long walks in lockdown and who would be treated as an interloper. New police powers saw people able to be detained on suspicion of breaching lockdown regulations, while rural groups campaigned to have visits to the countryside by folk from out of town banned, even though a walk in the open air offered almost no risk of spreading the virus further. I grew up in the countryside, and when I was younger, I was one of the few brown faces to be seen running about in the local hills. Things have got more diverse since my childhood, but rural England remains, for want of a better phrase, overwhelmingly white. A 2021 report from CPRE, the countryside charity, examined racial inequalities in access to green spaces. It found that of the time BMAE people spent in green spaces, only 15% of that was in the countryside. For white people, that number shot up to nearly 40%. And as I've discovered throughout Human Resources, these racial politics usually have roots that go deeper than the present day. One of the people digging up the impact of these buried histories of rural spaces is Annabel Gilmore. I'm a PhD university student at the University of Birmingham, and my project at the moment is looking at imperialism and slavery through the collection at Chalcote Park in Warwickshire. 
which was bought by William Thomas Beckford using his money from plantations in Jamaica. So it's just looking at how the impact of slavery and imperialism is now sitting in this one collection at Chalcote Park. Where is Chalcote Park? What is significant about it? It's in the countryside of Warwickshire. I would say South Warwickshire, just below Leamington, really, and really close to Stratford-upon-Avon. But my work at the moment is looking more 18th century at the Black presence in Warwickshire because I thought it would be interesting to investigate if Chalcote had any connections beyond the objects that they have in the house. What immediate evidence have you found of the Black present in Charlecote? There's a portrait in Charlecote of Captain Thomas Lucy. And in the background, there's a Black stable boy or page boy. And no one knows anything about him other than that he's in this picture. And there's debate as to whether he was even real or if he was added just to make Captain Thomas Lucy look better because of the idea that having black people in your portraits made you seem superior and rich because you could afford to have enslaved people in your household. How big was the black presence in total in the Charlaka area at this time? Do we know how those people found themselves there? Were they all enslaved or not? In my investigation, I found a few black people in the 18th century It's really annoying, basically, because you only ever have their baptismal records or in one case, there's just a burial record. So from the very beginning, there's Margaret Lucy, who shows up and is baptised in 1690, not even at Chalcote, but further south in Warwickshire at Idlecote. And she's said to be a black belonging to the Lady Underhill, which in itself makes things complicated because history doesn't tend to look into the female line of these country house estates. So there's not much talk about Lady Underhill. Also in Oxhill, there's Will Arcus, who's an adult baptised in 1700, and Matilla, who's buried at Oxhill in 1705. Matilla's been talked about before because her grave is in the church at Oxhill. And it shows in the description... It says that she's belonging to Mrs. Beecham, who was married to a Thomas Beecham, who seemed to have had plantations in Nevis. So it's likely that he brought over Matilla for his wife. But what's not mentioned is that the possible connection between Will Arcus, who was noted in Oxhill five years before Matilla's death. We don't know when they arrive in Warwick or anything like that, whether they were related, whether they even knew each other, or whether they even interacted whilst they were both in Oxhill. We only know of their mere existence. There's a mention in 1712 in Ilmington of Francis Warrington, who's said to have escaped slavery from Constantinople, which sounds like an amazing thing, but again, that's the only thing we know. Then there's the issue of whether she was Black in the sense of African Black, or if she was Black as in... Turkish or Indian and considered just black because she's simply not white. The small boy at Chalcote, who's actually mentioned in the baptism record at the church that's on Chalcote grounds, is Philip Lucy. He was baptised in 1735 and said to be six years old. He was given the surname Lucy, which does suggest a connection to the Lucy family, but we don't know anything further. 
And finally, there's Pulford Power, who was baptised age 14 in Alcester, which is much further north in Warwickshire. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. I'm really keen to know what life was like for black people in the 18th century English countryside. I asked Annabelle if she knew anything about the details that would bring the existence of these people into focus, how their days were spent, what jobs they would do if they formed a community. For me, the problem is that we don't have any records of what happens to these people after their baptisms or burial. I scoured through the databases and the various archives to see if there's any mention in burial records or marriages throughout Warwickshire, and there doesn't seem to be. It does lead then that you have to speculate on their lives, basically. So with Margaret Lucy and Matilla and Philip Lucy, they are associated with country houses, especially Margaret and Matilla, because they are actually said to have belonged to various ladies. They would have been servants, more or less, to these households. And mostly for status, I would guess. Um, we don't know their ages, uh, except Matilla is mentioned to have been a young girl. But again, that age range varies significantly. We know it was fashionable to have young black people as servants in the household, we can speculate that they were there, that they were placed in visible positions so that they could be seen by visitors to the house. What would that have been like as an experience? It could have been quite an isolating experience because in Warwickshire, as opposed to London, there weren't many other black people. Whereas London, that's where the majority of the black population were either that or in other port cities like Bristol or Liverpool or even Lancaster. Warwickshire is in the middle of the country. So there's not really that method of travel. There's not staying around the port cities. It's a conscious effort to move into the country, especially when Warwickshire at that time was mostly agriculture, except for Coventry and later Birmingham, which did become more industrial. We have to assume that the other black people there as well, if they didn't immediately move out, would have been servants to the household. But for me, ideally, what I would like to find is some form of servants records, just to show like if they were paid, if they had livery or anything, just any mention of what their jobs were whatsoever. But it seems like these records aren't around anymore. And in the case for Chalco, it's later on in the late 19th century. Some of the records were even destroyed. So it could be that I won't ever be able to find out the role of the Black people here. But in my opinion, it's not necessarily a bad thing always that we can't find 
any records of them because it just kind of suggests that maybe they were living ordinary lives because there are so many other people that we only know names of. You could consider it in that way, but I think there is still opportunity to try and find out more. It might be that it has to be a larger group thing to work on outside of just Warwickshire to connect maybe the whole of the Midlands or even further afield. Annabelle mentioned that much of her work is pieced together through baptism records. I'm interested to know what role baptisms played in the life of the black people who found themselves isolated in mostly all-white rural communities. The baptisms were really important as the faith in God showed you were being saved and it was the basic idea that black people were, depending, they were sort of considered almost savages for their own beliefs, their African beliefs or what they carried on to the Caribbean. It was a way to save their souls in that sort of sense and as a method of Anglicanizing them. The lack of information seems to speak not just to racial politics, but to class, where the lives of working class people in the 18th century weren't documented in the same way as the wealthy. I think it's good in encouraging ideas not to victimise them because their experiences could have been just as similar to white servants in the house. It's quite likely that if they were servants in these households, they would have interacted with these white servants. But in a way, because they are noted down in the baptism records and that sort of thing as black, it does give some sense of otherness just because it's the most noteworthy thing about them at the time. They don't have any parentage in these records. It's simply that they're black and when they're baptised. But I think in terms of living an ordinary experience, it's possible, but at the same time, considering how in the areas travel was very limited in the Midlands until they changed up the road networks and carriages became better as well, travel was quite difficult, then they would have been very lonely. Speaking with Annabelle, I did ask myself, why is it so important for us to understand the differences between the rural black experience and the urban black experience, especially in a modern context, when there's so much talking about what it means to be black and what it means to have a black experience? Sometimes these things can be framed homogeneously, especially today. Things are still oriented around London. And most of the information around 18th century black people comes from London. But it's not a one-size-fits-all experience. I wanted to find out more about the ways in which the countryside persists today as a white space. My name is Maxwell A. Ayamba. I'm originally from Ghana, even though I'm British now. I've been British for over 20 years now, but I still see myself as a Ghanaian. That's my heritage and that's who I am. I'm the founder and project coordinator of a charity in Sheffield called the Sheffield Environmental Movement, which I set up in 2016. But then I'm also the co-founder of a working group called the 100 Black Men Work for Health Group. In addition to that, I'm a PhD student in Black Studies at the University of Nottingham, Department of American Canadian Studies, and also M4C, AHRC, scholarship award. In addition to that, I'm an environmental journalist and then also I'm an ecocentrist. The English countryside in particular is encoded as a white space. When did that happen? So the whole history of black people in the British countryside has not been written into a countryside at all. 
and it's quite historical, really. And even though since time of enslavement, colonialism, and even predating that, you look at the time of the Roman Empire, the Tudors, Blackamoors, all these times, the whole issue about blackness and the British countryside space, which is deemed as white space, have not been given much credence at all, or it's not been written to history at all. So the issue of race ecology in the UK, as compared to the US, has not been given any credence at all. Lately, due to the death of George Floyd, Black Lives Matters protest, and then Corinne Fowler's publication of her book titled The Green Unpleasant Land, this was the beginning of rewriting the whole history of Black people in the British countryside. If you look at the history of enslavement, the whole British countryside was built out of blood and sweat of Black people through enslavement. Do you mean the English countryside was physically or metaphorically built off the backs of Black people? Or both? Much of British infrastructure, railways, the bridges, the stately homes, the manicured gardens, all these are down to enslaved people. And these have not been given much exposure. And so when you talk about the presence of Black people in the English countryside, they are not written to countryside at all. Basically, all their toil and their labor have all not been given that kind of recognition. And I suppose that has led to this whole issue of double consciousness, where basically you have Black people not really seen as being part of a system of society that they've been for a long, long time. And that sense of identity has been lost, it's been taken away from them. In the UK, land is often seen as a commodity. It goes hand in hand with our ideas about property being something to own and profit from. When in British history do we start seeing the commodification of the land? I think the Enslavement and Inclusions Act work together, where when the Inclusions Act were introduced, basically people who owned the land therefore looked for cheap labour to work on the land. And that was the beginning of how the English countryside, even though it's supposed to look green and pleasant, but ironically speaking, it wasn't green and pleasant. It was just completely soiled with people's sweat and blood. Okay, so the Enclosure Act really was the beginning of the opening up of the English countryside, where, you know, if you go back to Guy Shropshire's book about who owns England, where you see the gentry, the aristocracy, the crown who owned this land and had enslaved people working on this land. And also remember that there were a lot of enslaved people in the colonies, Caribbean countries, you know, had a lot of plantations there and the production of goods were brought here. We even had the cotton industries here where enslaved people worked and a whole lot of other industries like the gun manufacturing industry in Birmingham. I think it also helped to kickstart the industrial revolution, to be honest with you, where basically through the accumulation of wealth by these landowners, then opened up the British Empire even the more for them to even travel to other parts of the world to plunder resources and to colonise people and to continue the enslavement of people. You may be asking yourself, what was the Enclosures Act or the Acts of Enclosure, to be more accurate? Well, enclosure was a long process that began in medieval England, but ramped up during the 16th and 17th century. Land went from being open and common to essentially being privatised via enclosure, where it was parceled off with barriers like fences. 
This was initially done via informal agreement with landowners like farmers or local aristocracy. But during the 17th century, the practice developed of obtaining authorization to enclose through an act of parliament. Initiatives to enclose came either from landowners hoping to maximise rental from their estates or from tenant farmers anxious to improve their farms. From the 1750s, enclosure by parliamentary act became the norm. Overall, between 1604 and 1914, over 5,200 enclosure bills were enacted by parliament. This translated to just over a fifth of the total area of England, amounting to nearly 7 million acres. Land ownership always feels very mysterious to me. How can someone own the grass I'm walking on, miles away from anyone? I asked Maxwell whether we've seen any changes in how we think about land throughout English history. England, roughly speaking, we devote 10% of our land to towns and cities and 70% to farming, with 20% left over for nature. That's how the whole land is divided into. But then, what he's saying is that 25,000 landowners, far less than 1% of the population, own half of England. Okay, so how can you change that land ownership? And again, I think he spoke about, he says that the Doomsday Book in 1086, some 200 Norman barons owned half of England. Thanks to a miracle of trickle-down economics, that elite expanded over time, so that a mere eight centuries later, half of England lay in the hands of 4,000 aristocrats and members of the gentry. It's certainly the case that the aristocracy subsequently declined from their late Victorian heyday, but while between the 1920s and 1970s, there was greater equality of land ownership in England as some of the old estates were broken up and a new generation of tenant farmers were able to buy their own farms. So redistribution of wealth by successive governments was partially mirrored in the redistribution of land through the expansion of country farms, allotments, and council housing. But throughout all this, the landed aristocracy survived to a far greater extent than is commonly realized. Common people just don't know what is going on. So from the 1970s onwards, they were joined by a newly minted plutocracy who today are keeping up the land-owned tradition of a territorial elite. So the territorial elite that he mentioned here is something that you can break. And this is the crux of the issue. Is this concept of land being a commodity specific to England? It seems very different from, say, the relationship indigenous communities in Australia have with the land. If you want to look at the whole concept of land in terms of the way land is perceived in the West, it's more anthropogenic than biocentric. And what I mean by that is people in the West or in Britain just see the land as a commodity to exploit. Whereas when you look at land in most indigenous communities, land is a source of livelihood and is something to be revered. They have that kind of spiritual distance to land. And so coming back to the British situation, because land is seen as a commodity, this anthropogenic view of exploitation, of exploiting land, whether for leisure and recreation or for wealth or whatever it is, is something that has always been and has always prevailed. This changing relationship to English soil, where it becomes something to exploit, feels really similar to the way the British Empire viewed its slave colonies. Both the land and the enslaved people who worked on it were seen purely in terms of profit and ownership. People who'd made their wealth on plantations quickly bought up large countryside estates too and claimed the land in Britain for themselves. 
Those dynamics persist today, don't they, in terms of who has access to green spaces? Rural spaces historically have always been spaces that are described as the rural ideal, where you have the wealth on one hand and you do have poverty there as well. But in terms of access, the rural space itself is such an environment that you have rural ownership. Whether the people are poor or they are rich, it doesn't matter. What matters here really is seeing outsiders who are not like them coming into those spaces is seen to be an invasion of their private space. And so space is a contested issue here where people want to own that space and basically become minoritized groups of black people, obviously, are, are seen to be urbanized. You know, that's where we belong and that's where we should be. Making that move to go into a space that is deemed white, a white space, then it is obviously not seen as something that is normal. So the normalization of white spaces is such that they want it to remain that way. But on the other hand, government is saying that we need to put equality and diversity and access to those spaces. It's all down to whole concept of colonialism, where Black people, they were just seen as tools of production, really. They weren't regarded as human beings. We know that since the Crow Act in 2000, which opened up the countryside for people to roam, there are still large parts of the countryside still locked away. 97% of the coastal area is still locked away whereas the land is 92%. So following that, what's happening is that the commodification of the land has led to, like uh, I think Guy described here, old money and new money. Old money being the aristocracy, the crown, the gentry, and those kind of things who own almost three quarters of the land. And then the remaining part of the land, 2% is owned by you know premiership footballers. And then a certain percentage, I can't remember, is owned by um, Arab sheikhs and then Russian oligarchs. So you find out that they've got big estates that are completely sealed away or they have barbed wires all over the place where you can't access those spaces. I don't know whether this is my impression, but it does feel like only recently have these discussions about land access started up again. Is there a reason for that? The issue of land is not something that the majority of British people really care about. All that they needed was where food was coming from, where they had uh, social services provided for them to meet their needs and those kind of things. And so who cares about who owned the land? Nobody cared. But I suppose the whole thing has come to the fore now because basically with climate change crisis, the COVID-19 impact, a lot of people now beginning to understand the importance of having access to green space. you find out that a lot of people in England here don't know where their resources come from to give them that kind of sustenance, the comfort, but not even sustenance. I think it's the comfort that they're enjoying. And so they think much of the problems developed in the developing world are caused by the people there. But they forget that almost 99% of the resources that are extracted or exploited come from the developing world to sustain this country here. And so one hand, you're talking about environmental justice, you're talking about human rights, you're talking about ecological justice, but on the same hand, you're not prepared to let go the enjoyment. And that's going back to what um, Guy said in his book about the fact that the land in England is owned just by you know a few percentage of, of the population. So how many people are aware of this? So long as somebody, you get up, you know, your tap is running, 
you can get food, you can go to Asda or Tesco's or go to you know these cheap supermarkets and buy your food. You don't know where the food is coming from, you know, how it's grown, what went into growing the food. You can go and buy your necklace, your jeweler, you don't know how they jewel. You can go and buy your mobile phone, you know, you don't know how those mining of photo and how all these things are done. Who cares? So long as I can get the resources that can sustain my life to help with whatever happens, it's none of my business. My comfort comes first. It makes my heart ache to think of the detached relationship that's developed between large parts of British society and the countryside that they should be able to enjoy. My formative years were shaped in rolling hills. I learned to love nature, to respect it, and to understand that long after I am dead and gone, the land will remain. But legacies of colonialism and racism have created a very different bond with the land for many others. I'm left with the same questions racial ecologists are grappling with now. How can rural England be opened up? How we can wrestle back land from those who wish to gatekeep it? And how we can make people care? But first, I'm picking up the trail of one of the UK's most famous exports. Most people know that British railways are a legacy of colonialism in countries like India. But what happens if we follow the tracks laid down in the era of plantation slavery? Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothi McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz and Smiley Sound Collective. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production. Hi, I'm Ben Yellowitz, the sound designer. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Tuki for lending us some of their music for this series. Tuki are a music duo formed in Britain, fusing sounds from their heritage in Western Africa, Western Europe and America. I really recommend that you go check them out at Tuki, that's T-O-U-K-I, dot bandcamp.com. Don't, don't.